Hey everybody, it's Evan Troxel here of ArcaSpeak, and Cormac and I just got back from the 2019 AIA Conference on Architecture in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we were at the Las Vegas Convention Center for a few days and did a couple tours and things like that, and just generally got around the city and saw a bunch of cool stuff. And overall, I think it was a great conference. And I'm here today to do a quick intro for the first half, let's call it part one, of an over three-hour recording that we did at the RCAT booth on the expo floor at the AIA conference on architecture. We had a lot of great guests. I'm going to kind of quickly go through a bunch of those. But before I do, I wanted to just provide an intro of what the podcast was because it wasn't just the ArcaSpeak podcast at the show. We actually did a joint podcast with two other podcasts, so three of us in total, and the event was labeled ArcaST uh, because we were recording under the big red A at the ArcaT booth. So uh, because Cormac is probably halfway across the U.S. driving back toward the East Coast from the West Coast on his son's graduation extravaganza trip that he's doing, uh, I'm here doing this solo. So let's see. Uh, we had two other podcasts. We had the Entree Architect podcast with Mark R. LePage. And we had the Inside the Firm podcast with Lance Psycho. And we had the ArcaSpeak podcast with Cormac and myself. So before I jump into who the guests were, I have a little bit of news that I wanted to cover real quick. So two things. Uh, the first thing is that uh, coming up in about two weeks from when this podcast goes live, there's going to be a, a tech conference at USC, the University of Southern California. It's called the BIMBOP. It's the 13th annual BIMBOP put on by Doug Noble and Karen Kenzik of USC, uh, the architecture department there. And this is a fantastic tech conference. It's 55 bucks to go, and that includes lunch. So I wanted to do a quick plug for that. We will definitely have a link for that in the show notes. The second thing is a reminder about our after show from the last episode where we had Peter Lavelle from the AIA Redwood Empire talking about the PSR1 design build competition. So a link to that in the show notes. I would love it if you could go check that out. ArcaSpeak is going to be jurying that competition along with a couple of other jurors. So we're really looking forward to that coming up in about a month. Definitely check in on that and I hope you would even register. It's a cool design build competition. It's, it looks like a great way to get some exposure. Those are the two items of news. Uh, I wanted to talk real quick about who's going to be on this episode before we jump in. So we had Scott Reynolds of Upcodes AI. We had Shane Scranton of Iris VR. We had Mike Rizika of Young Architect. Robert Ewan of Monograph. Reg Prentice from Tonic DM. And then in our last section of the podcast, we had the infamous Nick Renard from Dig Architecture, and we had Jared Zern from NCARB. So there was a lot of information packed into this episode. Like we said, it was a three-hour-long recording extravaganza. I've broken it into two parts, so the next part will come out in the next episode. Uh, I hope you like it, and... Uh, one of the cool things that I've done on this episode that I think is a little bit different is I have included chapter markers for each of the different interviews. So if you're using a podcast player like Overcast, which is my favorite podcast player, uh, you'll see those pop up in the episode, and you can actually skip from section to section. So uh, take advantage of that if, you, if that's your thing, uh, because I realize that it is a longer episode. Uh, the next one will be a little bit shorter because this one is probably a little bit more than halfway through. But anyway, really had a great time recording this. It was super fun. Uh, Cormac 
said likewise. It was definitely something that we're looking forward to doing potentially again next year at the AIA conference in Los Angeles, my hometown. Uh, anyway, let's get on with the episode, and I'll talk to you at the end. It's a love fest. Cuddle up, brother. Let's let's do this. This is the first annual Rcast. We're sitting first here at the uh, the Rcat booth here at AIA conference. 2019 under the big red a under the big red a i am mark arlapage with entree architect podcast and i'm, I'm troxel with the Speak podcast cormac failing with the Speak podcast i'm lance psycho with inside the firm podcast and uh, i think first we should thank casey and bill from arcat for offering us the space to do this this is they've they've offered many years in a row we finally took them up on it yeah so thank yeah. you guys it's been a this is gonna be cool yeah, this is going to be fun. We're going to do a three-hour marathon podcast Wait, here. three hours. Yeah, <laughs> and I had just been talking for two hours straight before this, so yeah. here we go. So this is good. We'll see how this goes. We're we working. <laughs> Probably got to get another We're one. Working. We, ha- we have a bunch of guests scheduled. We'll see how that works out because I think it's going to be complicated enough with just the four of us here, and then we're going to bring in some guests and, and have some conversation as well. So yep. um, we'll, see. we'll see how it goes. Why don't we uh, start off with Scott because Scott's here. We're, this is a fully off-the-cuff, casual conversation here. So we've invited a bunch of guests to talk about what they're passionate about. You have about 10 minutes. Why don't you talk about who you are, what do you do, and uh, how are you trying to make the world a better place through what you're doing? Yeah, well, uh, th- thanks a lot for uh, having me on, on the show. Um, so I'm Scott Reynolds, one of the co-founders at Upcodes, and we focus on uh, building regulations. So building some new technology and two new uh, workflows for professionals to navigate through the compliance process. Um, the first product, Upcodes Web, uh, we consolidate building regulations online, make it a little bit more searchable, easier to collaborate with. And secondly, Upcodes AI. I'm starting to think about automating the uh, building code compliance process in BIM models. So looking at the 3D model and uh, creating a spell check for compliance. Nice. That's a cool way so to talk expl- about it. Like, can you get a little bit more specific about it? So like, is, would an example of that be like, okay, we're going to do an ADA clearance check? Like that sort of thing? It, it, exactly. So it's kind of like a uh, what we like to think of like a consultant looking over your shoulder. Just like a gut check for exactly like you said, ADA. Uh, so that was one of the most popular uh, or more popular requested features. And that's where we focused, at least in the beginning. Um, so just like you said, like a turning radius, push-pull clearance, giving you a heads up if we can identify there might be an issue or potential code issue there um, just as a second check. Yeah, very cool. I've been asking everybody on my podcast, I've been doing separate interviews, a uh, question about how they think uh, as automation, you know, there's been there's a lot of talk right now, It's a, we're heading into election seasons and stuff about automation and what that means for job markets and everything. Um, but that's part of the job. That's where I like automation coming in because I don't want to do that stuff. I want a computer to do it and tell me where we're wrong. And then, you know, so my guys can spend more time on design or we can spend more time in the field. So very, very cool stuff. What inspired, like, you, are you to, to create this? So my background's in architecture. Uh, I studied architecture at Syracuse University, worked abroad for a little bit, um, and then worked in New York for a little while. And code compliance was one of my main focuses and also the bane of, of uh, my day-to-day <laughs> job. Uh, and I was kind of blown away. There, there was no software, no kind of uh, structured workflow to manage compliance. And um, I was surprised, but, but also feeling that pain firsthand. And that's when I reached out to my brother, who was a software engineer, and said, hey, look, can, can we introduce some kind of software uh, to, to alleviate some of this, some of this pain? Uh, and that's really what inspired that, that first iteration of Upcodes. 
Very cool. I know we've used it a few times. Have you guys used it yet? I, oh, very, very briefly. Scott and I have been talking a lot on Entree Architects uh, through the Facebook group, and we just talked yesterday on, on Facebook Live, and so I've learned a lot about it, and uh, super interesting, and I love what the, the future of, of uh, UpCodes is all, all, all about. Yeah, well, thanks for those conversations. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and good. I've used the online. I've used the online version of it. Um, I can't get the uh, my IT department to actually let me launch the uh, you know the AI for it. But as I slowly start getting people within our office to actually start seeing it and, and actually how to use it, um, I'm gonna I'm, I'm fighting the fight from the the rear so that you know everybody's like, oh, we got to get this, we got to get this because. You know, that it's going to make our life so much simpler because, yes, I mean, codes in, you know, large-scale projects like I work on are the bane of my existence. And, you know, so if I can at least have something that's helping me out in the background, look at a baseline of where I'm, you know, meeting or not meeting code, you know, that's great because, I mean, we're all, everybody, like I was, you know, talked on, on our podcast not too long ago, you know, we're always looking for, you know, at least the baseline, and then we can start looking into, you know, all of the the, the um, exceptions and all that other stuff because that's usually where we kind of live is in the exceptions. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think we, we really look at the uh, the approval process. So pulling a permit, right. what what are the delays? What's what's getting caught? And trying to catch those really just low hanging fruit. Yeah, those things that are not necessary. Like you said, right. you you live in exceptions. You should focus on the more critical, more complicated component of that. And you know, I think going earlier to the to the um, idea of automation and what does that mean for the for the professional's uh, job and, and future, we we just focus on that mundane, low hanging fruit and try and let the designer focus on the. I think what humans are really good at their, their creative process, reading in between the lines, letting the computers do the low hanging, uh, mundane tasks of, of code check. Well, one of the things, and I don't know, um, you know, where you're at, you know, maybe within the process or whatever, but one of the things that we had talked about in the past was, you know, as this automation starts becoming more and more prevalent, you know, are these things that we can start getting code reviewers and things like that to actually start to see because that changes the game on our submittal processes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's first and foremost in our mind is is to bridge that gap between the, the designer and the government body or the AHJ. Right. Um, and ideally, they can adopt some of this uh, technology to increase transparency. Right. So you right. as a designer, before you try and pull a permit, you would have some indication if that's going to be accepted or not accepted and, and why. I think it's uh, it's pretty challenging the discrepancy you, you see between jurisdictions and right. one plans yeah. examiner might um, interpret it a certain way and, and another might do it a different way. So I think trying to bring that transparency and consistency is, is well, and, important. And another thing is what I see is an opportunity is, um, you know, we know that the approval process takes forever. I mean, I've got, I've got a project that I'm working on right now that the published approval process is could take up to 12 months. You know, I mean, really? Does it take, I mean, it doesn't take me 12 months to do a code review on my project, so why is it taking you 12 months? So, you know, to be able to integrate an AI process, you know, into it so that you can actually start to see where it passes, where it fails, and stuff like that is, you know, encouraging to me um, that, you know, we can start to chip away at these long re uh, review processes. Yeah, certainly. And it, it, it's it's definitely a long road. It, it's such a complicated um, um, yeah. domain yes. that, uh, <laughs> like, like you alluded to, like, like chipping away at this, We th that's exactly the way we think about it. Maybe like a three, five-year process that we can even get to like 20, 30% coverage of all the code, but slowly trying to get more and more of that, of those automated checks happening. Right, right. I wanted, I wanted to bring Shane into this conversation as well. Shane's with, with uh, Iris VR, 
And I think that there's there's some future of architecture right here sitting with us. Um, and so I wanted to bring Shane into this conversation with Scott from up. Uh, Shane, what's your last name again? Scranton. Right. Yep. Shane Scranton from Iris VR. Um, you want to just talk about a little bit about what you do, and then um, I'd love to sort of see how your two worlds connect. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a software company that brings various design, various design models, Revit, SketchUp, Rhino, Navis, direct into VR to really accelerate the decision-making process with clients and with other stakeholders on the project. And uh, as VR gets easier, really making that process just super one-click and really easy to engage with the project at one-to-one scale. At our firm, we use we use Prospect. We've been huge fans of Shane and his work and obviously lots of back and forth to develop the product as it goes along. And I think that's starting to happen with you guys as well. I'm sure you're getting a lot of input over at Upcodes. Um, and what I, my question is, like I have actually two questions, that one of them is, is for, for you and one of them is for both of you guys. I know that you on the podcast can't see who I'm pointing at. But, um, <laughs> but Scott, but Scott at, at Upcodes, uh, are, you guys get, are you getting any f- interest from agencies with your software? Because I know like we, we do a lot of work with Department of the State Architect. They're actually doing some automated code check for accessibility on PDFs, not in 3D. Um, but I would assume that as we work more toward model-based delivery and someday, uh, would they just be able to implement something like you? And then the second question that I think both of you guys, is, is there a way that we can then take that information that you've got and actually experience it e- either internally in our firms but then also with the code officials at the same time, get into the models and have discussions about these things and look at those collisions and obviously in VR, it's not a big deal for us to pull these. Uh, we can already do markups in, in VR. We can tag elements. We can do all these things. So so how will those two things, how could you guys see those two things kind of overlapping since it's all based on the same model anyway, potentially? Yeah, that, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, and, and just thinking at a macro level what's happening in the U.S., um, the AHJs are getting uh, increased budget cuts. Um, so they're having to operate on, on, on a leaner budget and less staff. Meanwhile, the architecture industry is growing, continues to grow. Uh, more applications being submitted to the, to the AHJs, and they're struggling and, and buckling under that pressure, and um, permitting times are getting longer and longer. So here in Las Vegas, um, we, we just heard that it's a three-month waiting period before you can get a, a permit pulled. So that's the macro trend. Um, so as a result of that, we have had a lot of positive uh, interest in automating it, at, at least to some point, um, in that process to alleviate some of their, some of their uh, uh, woos. Um, so we've, we've talked uh, domestically to, to say, like Oshpod, uh, dealing with healthcare and California construction, um, and, and a lot of typical building departments, um, but also internationally, interesting. So Singapore is throwing a lot of money at it. They, they dealt, dealt with this in the early 90s. Um, they, they poured millions and millions in the 90s, and it looks like they might be looking at a $40 million government contract just to look at automated plan review. <laughs> um, so this exact topic, Abu Dhabi is doing the same thing. Um, so... I think there's interest both domestically but also internationally. Yeah, I think to the second part of your question, um, I mean, a lot of what we're looking at is how do we make the model more of the source of truth and how do we sort of preserve the workflows in the actual 3D digital context? And uh, I think especially from like an approval standpoint, the more you can exist true to scale in the actual model and be able to walk through and experience it can really speed up the approval process quite a lot. And I mean, I think there's 
there's various elements that that I don't think VR will address right out of the gate, but the more people can exist in the actual uh, source of truth within the file, there's a lot that can be accelerated there. Well, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, one of the things that we struggle with when we're in front of an AHJ is trying to explain to them exactly, you know, some of the issues that we have with, you know, what meets code, what doesn't meet code, and all of these other things. And if we're able to take them into the model to actually show them where it meets code, where it doesn't meet code, and things like that, I do see a, a great overlap between, you know, what you guys are doing. Yeah, it takes out a lot of the abstraction. Is like exactly. instead of trying to describe with words and plans, yeah. you can go in and look directly at the element. Yeah, and Shane, Shane that's, a, that's a great point, the, the source of truth kind of concept. Because you have a BIM model, it has all the information packed into it, but at the end of the day, you export to a 2D drawing set. And there, there's a, a huge disconnect between a 3D model and that and that, that 2D drawing set. So yep. I think what, yes. what IRS VR does, and what's so interesting, is is putting the emphasis on that, that BIM model. And I wonder if there's a future where we can actually submit the, the BIM model to the government yep. and cut well, out that, that export. That is the dream. Yeah, that is definitely a goal that, like, Evan and I talk about constantly, is because we've, you know, we see the, the validity of, I mean, so we, we've, we've talked about um, with a variety of different things. I've got projects that, you know, we give off to the CM, uh, our BIM model, and they're building off of the BIM model. So why can't we go to the AHJ and, you know, do our permitting off of the of, off of the BIM model? I mean, we're, we're almost there. It's just, you know, you're right with, you know, the cutbacks and everything else. I mean, you've got, you know, basically staff that isn't trained in the, the software that we're trying to show them, and, you know, to make it a lot easier is basically the next step you know if if they feel comfortable with it you know they'll, they'll start looking at it yeah it's a, it's a conversation about accessibility too i mean it's it's hard to open a two gigabyte revit file if you're an hj right i, mean, I think there is also just access to the data i mean a pdf and a printout is still so familiar and so easy so i do think there is sort of reducing the abstraction of what the drawings are showing and, and what the model means. But I think it's also just making the consumption of that data really accessible to anyone who's non-technical. And that's a lot of what we're looking at now on the VR side is uh, VR is a great way to reduce that abstraction, but it also needs to be really accessible. So someone who's non-technical, someone who's been at the HJ for right. five yeah. For 50 years, 30, uh, 30, 30 years, 40, yeah, yeah, 30, can, uh, 40, 50 years, yeah, can, exactly. can open it up and access that data, yeah. And that, that kind of brings up the idea of uh, proprietary file formats too. A lot of people, especially in the U.S., work in Revit files, uh, but an AHA can't really back, you know, an Autodesk product like like a like a Revit file. Um, so then you start to think about, well, what, what's like a shared uh, standard for BIM, and that is most likely IFC. Um, so thinking about what's the accessibility to an IFC model, and I'm not sure if I, uh, IRSVR supports IFC, but I think that would be a huge leap forward for an AHJ, being able to operate on that BIM model without going through an Autodesk product. We didn't plan this, but our next release will have IFC support. So <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here first. <laughs> and it does seem like there's a lot of companies out there kind of trying to get into the position of, of what's it like to be the owner in this world where everybody's operating with different file formats and different platforms because they don't want to, they, they don't have the budget to, to train people to use them. They don't want to spend the money to license the software over and over every year, right? right. And so like, like we see Unity's announcement, right, where they're building a platform for the models to become federated so that somebody who doesn't know Revit doesn't own Revit, whatever, they, they can just pull open, you know, it could be on the cloud, they can get in the model, they can review it, 
and it's fast, it's light, it works on any device, right? It works on an iPhone, it works on an iPad, it works on a computer, it doesn't matter what you have, it goes up and down the, the technology, you know, the levels of technology so easily. I, it's interesting to see the, uh, these other companies, like, really from like the, the video game side, the game development side, who are like, whoa, like there's, there's, a, there's a foothold to be gained to give empathy to the owner, <laughs> right? Who, who doesn't talk this language, who doesn't deal with this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. so Scott, Scott's going to switch out. Scott, thank you very much for hanging out with us. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank Scott. you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think this is going to be one of those problems that we have here. We have a lot of people talking about a Schedule lot of passionate up. things. Yep. And so what I thought is maybe we can overlap. I want to, I want uh, Shane to stay, and uh, introduce uh, Mike Rasika of Young Architect. And Mike, you want to talk about uh, what you do, why you do it, and then maybe um, we can overlap a little bit about what Shane's doing with Iris VR and how. You know what you're doing, how those two things we'll uh, yeah, yeah. overlap. I, I talk to you guys every year at the conference. So I'm Michael Rosica. I uh, am a licensed architect in the state of Oregon. Uh, when I got my license, I had a really hard time getting it. I spent it was a hell of an experience. I felt like I had, there was so much bad information about what the architect exam was. And after I was done with my exams, I needed something creative to work on because there's nothing creative about passing these tests. And I needed to make something and express myself. So I started a blog, youngarchitect.com, and I started writing about how I passed the architect exam. I started ranting and raving about the profession. And it just got, a, it very quickly, it picked up a lot of momentum. And now at this point, I got a program that helps people get started with taking the architect exams. We're creating study materials. We're traveling around the country, giving lectures about the ARE and entrepreneurship, teaching workshops, putting out podcasts, making videos. It's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you, if you can give us kind of an example of the kinds of people that you talk to as you go on this road show and, and yeah. do the boot camps and all that kind of stuff. Well, I talk to students a lot of time. I'll start there. I start. I, I do a lot of lectures at universities talking about... I have a presentation about, I call it Entrepreneurship for Architecture Students, where I hammer on three different principles. It's trading your time for dollars, uh, establishing multiple streams of income, and finding, uh, finding a problem to solve and monetizing it. And so I do that uh, lecture for students, and then I also speak at a lot of AIA chapters and firms and conferences about the architect exam. And kind of the message of that presentation is really of let's stop looking at this thing as it's a test. Let's start really, let's treat it as an opportunity to learn to, as professional development to become better architects and really learn the craft of how to practice. And let's focus on that and let's set our sights so much higher up as becoming successful architects rather than just people that pass tests. That's so, cool. Yeah. So you've become a consultant in a different way to the profession. I mean, it's, you're, you're helping the profession be a profession. Yeah. And that further, was kind of one of, the, down the road. one of the things that happened was there was a there was a period where I was doing I was practicing at the same time doing projects, and I felt like waiting in line and dealing with clients and dealing with building officials was getting in the way of all this young architect stuff. So I take a, I took a step back about a year and a half ago. You can always go back to that. I know I've been yeah. I've been practicing I've been working yeah. in this profession for so long. Yeah. So I've been focusing on the young architect stuff full time. Cool. So Shane. You come from architecture as well, right? I do. And so I was talking about architect. this, talking about this entrepreneurial spirit and like solving a problem. I mean that that's where Iris VR came from, right? Yeah, I mean it's funny. I was up in Vermont working at small residential firms and loved it, but really my strength was in 3D. And so I branched off and started doing sort of 3D consulting, 3D freelance, and that evolved into what Iris is effectively. 
got a headset in 2013, started bringing it into clients. And very quickly it was, uh, Shane, why are we paying you for renderings? You should be doing VR for us. And yeah. we moved into sort of the VR space in 2014 and saw very quickly that we could be one of the first. Yeah. And there was a big opportunity for software. So, yeah, sort of came from came from the architecture world. I say I moved to the dark side of tech, but... Um, That's construction, actually. Yeah. 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 Oh, excuse Sorry. me. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, no, it's I, I also joke that I would... I mean, I never got my MRC. I was undergrad, and, you know, it's so funny. It was such a debate, uh, just the expense of grad school. That's actually what fueled my freelance work. The plan was to go to grad school and sort of got pulled into the tech space. And uh, it's an interesting conversation around just how this industry cultivates young talent. And now you're just talking to architects all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Couldn't yes. get away. Exactly. Here I am, around about 20,000 of them, I think. So, <laughs> Okay, so so Iris VR, you guys let us experience our models, experience stuff before it's built and, in an amazing way. And so what are you most excited about now? Like there's there's 800 headsets available now. There's, there's so many directions people could go. Yeah. If you were to kind of give an idea, and I think this kind of ties back to students as well, because like I, I would teach an emerging technology class at Cal Poly, and... We talk about things that didn't exist five, ten years ago that are now career paths in architecture. Yeah. And so as, as you're, Mike, as you're kind of engaging with students and you're talking about passing these exams, obviously that's a huge step into a career in architecture. You're actually, Shane, providing a potential career in architecture uh, with through visualization, through VR. So what are you excited about? What, what do you tell people who are, you know, looking at all this technology, all these potential dollars they could spend obviously they don't have to spend all that money to get into it but because there's a lot of great software out there that's low cost or you know, where they can sample it and try it out but and yeah. you're aimed at something different than that but what are you most excited about yeah it's it's a really exciting 2019 and 2020 i think um on the hardware side uh, i have a headset sitting next to me that obviously listeners can't see but it's the oculus quest Brand it's new. a Brand new. It's a big deal because it's got sort of full tracking and uh, f- and full sort of access to the to the right type of VR in our eyes. It's six degrees of freedom. Really, really feels like you're there, uh, and no computer required. So it's completely self-contained. It's four hundred bucks. Put it in my bag. I carried it here. Like, don't need a it's laptop. Wireless too. So except wireless, just <laughs> so nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's really in our eyes the first big step towards just making VR actually accessible to people who aren't tech enthusiasts who have a $2,000 or $3,000 laptop or a desktop. And um, I think technology like this makes um, makes being an entrepreneur in a frontier tech market a lot easier because you're not really engaging just with early adopters. You're able to engage with a more majority market, which you sort of need to start scaling a business if you're if you're testing it out. So we're really excited about this technology just in general and VR just becoming more accessible across the board. I, I've picked Everywhere. the quest, but yeah. there's been a ton of releases this summer. Yeah. So on the VR side, I'm really excited about that. I think um, more exciting even for what we've seen in the last five years is it seems like firms really are thinking more, you, you even mentioned this, um, are thinking more about what it means to have a federated model and what it means to have, I already said this as well, but what it means to have a single source of truth. Yeah. And I'm just seeing that come up in more conversations, whether that's uh, BIM 360, whether that's using sort of Navisworks, whether that's using uh, sort of another web-enabled tool. Um, and I think that's a really important part of the process for the industry to start thinking about these models as, as sort of digital twins and representations of the job site and of right. the project. Right. And, uh, of course, that layers really nicely into what we're doing in VR. So I'm excited about that trend, too. Awesome. So, Mike, where are you headed next? I'm going to fly back to New York, and I'm going to do a couple of presentations around Long Island, New Jersey. Wow. And So where's your van? 
Oh, it's in New York right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing. I've been living in my van since November 2018. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, it was, I'm spending so much time traveling, and I used to have a minivan, and I was like, you know what? I need a better. I need a bigger van. Bigger van, yeah. And so I went out and I bought a Mercedes Sprinter, and I've been... <laughs> Building it nonstop. That's cool. It's been it's been like my hobby. It's given me something to do. It's given me a yeah. reason to go to Home Depot every day. Yeah. And so um, yeah, Hands I've been on. working on that. So I'm gonna head up to at the end of June. I'm gonna head up to. I'm gonna do a presentation in Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit. Then uh, I'm gonna drive out to Portland, Oregon. I'm gonna be in I'm gonna be in the West Coast all summer long. And we're having a young architect conference this summer for the next generation Plug it. architects. That's cool. Yeah, that's what I want. I wanted to make sure yeah. you talked about that. Toronto. I mean. There's so many architecture conferences, and they all have kind of a different spin on it. And I wanted to have a conference really for the young people in the profession. And let's have conversations and keynotes and workshops and parties that are all kind of focused on building a more successful profession. And I love what you did with the with the speakers. Talk a little bit about how you formatted the speakers. It's not a typical conference. Yeah. So I said, rather than hearing from star architects or movie stars at our conference, we want to hear from young, successful young people yeah. who have stories to share and let's get them on stage. And yeah, and those are some voices that are not being heard right now. Yeah. And so it's it's great and, to sort of yeah, and hear so, that. So we've got uh, a bunch of amazing people from all over the country who are going to be doing our keynotes. And then we've got 20, uh, like 25, 30 different workshops um, all focusing on professional development for, for the future. So how do people find out about that if they want to? Conference.youngarchitect.com. All right, conference.youngarchitect.com. And what's the date and location? Oh, it's in Portland, Oregon, August 23rd through the 25th we rented a beautiful venue for it brand new and we're just super yeah excited. i saw that on the site that looks like a yeah. very cool place <laughs> that's cool yeah. i just went to portland for the very first time like two months ago and i was blown away like we got great weather portland japanese yeah. gardens oh, yeah. downtown. it's beautiful. just a beautiful there's so many th- you know multnomah falls there's so many things to do there if you love the mountains if you love clean air it's, it's an amazing a city place to go yeah, yeah. cool well, thanks, guys. Thanks yeah, for being our here. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Is there anything, Shane, that you want to give a, give everybody your web address? Yep. Talk yeah. about uh, Prospect and what it does real quick and yeah, leave abs- people with uh, with something to check out. Absolutely. And uh, since we're talking about young architects, uh, if you're a student, we give out our software for free. So now with the Quest, which is 400 bucks, you can get that running with our software for free. You can apply right through our website, which is irisvr.com. Um, we really want every student to be in VR experiencing their projects and their Absolutely. designs yeah um and uh coming up next we i mean we have prospect now available for the quest as well as these next generation headsets and you we've had a trial for a long time you can download a trial it's 14 days direct from our website as well awesome cool well yeah. thanks guys yeah my pleasure thank you thanks for coming right we're going to take a quick break from this episode to mention our sponsor and that as you probably have already guessed is rcat since we were recording in their booth at the AIA show. So it's spring, which means it's time for growth, renewal, and adjustment, but we're not talking about your failed New Year's resolutions. We're talking about building products. Manufacturers are removing, adjusting, and adding products to the catalogs to meet standards of an evolving industry. That means your old CAD, BIM, and specs might need updating. Luckily, RCAT works with manufacturers to get their newest information online so you know you are getting the latest and greatest from a building product company. And it was kind of cool during the show. I saw the RCAT plaque on so many booths. So they really are working with all of the companies that are representing the products and the manufacturers that we work with all the time as architects. Best of all, the data is free for you to browse and download. You don't have to register. They're not tracking you. Check out RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. The next time that you need the latest building product information.
Thanks, guys. I have uh, Robert Hune coming on next with Monograph, but he's not here right now. He was here, and he uh, away. He's, he's coming back. Thanks, Shane. We have people taking photos. Yep, yep. And I got Facebook here. Live going on here, too. If anybody who doesn't know what's happening here, this is the first annual Arcast. We are at the Arcat booth at the AIA conference, and uh, we're talking to a bunch of guests. Uh, every 15 minutes or so, we got a new guest coming in, and so we figured we'd uh, broadcast it on Facebook as well. So uh, if you're hearing us and you're seeing us, that's what you're hearing and seeing. So we have uh, Robert Yoon of Monograph coming next, and then uh, Reg, Reg Prentice is coming up after Robert, and we can overlap them too maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, they actually worked together because they were both in the incubator program oh, for so they know. Zero 060, so oh, they, they know each other. That'll be a great conversation. Yep. So let's talk about your meetup last night. Yeah, the meetup was great. I thought it was a great turnout. It was. Um, can, we, can we talk about the venue real quick? <laughs> That's we, what I wanted to start with. We have to start there. Yeah, absolutely. So so I'll just give my, and this happened to you too, right? We, we, we called a, a lift. They said, we're going, we're going to the, what was it called? Rancho? It was the, uh, uh, the we have cantina. We to plug the place. Because it was the. Um, we got to send people there. El Dorado Cantina. El Dorado Cantina, right? Yep. And, and so we get in the lift, and the guy's like, El Dorado Cantina, right? Yep. And we drive over there. A Mexican place. And we pull into this parking lot for a strip joint. <laughs> Sapphires. Right? And, and it was like, are we at the right place? And there's a, a door on the right, and there's a door on the left. It's one building, right? And I was like, is this really? Yeah. Did Mark know about this? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knew about it until we got there. We, so they conveniently left that out. <laughs> yeah. I, when they market the El Dorado Cantina, they don't mention that it's part of the s- strip joint. Yeah. It's, it's actually not. I mean, it's in the same building. It's in the same parking lot. Uh, but it has no connection. Right. And so it's a, it, was a great, a it was actually a great place. It was a fantastic place. So they, they told their story about that place. And, and, and I thought it was funny how the owner presented it. She said, you know, it could be, a, it could be the reason you're here. Right. <laughs> or, right. It's or, either the asset or the liability. Right. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> so it was a great meetup, though. I mean, tons of activity, lots of excitement, lots of they announced the uh, CVG Award winner right for the business plan for the competition. business plan competition right. this year, and uh, it was I mean, a, a collaborated uh, event. So the last the last two years we've done that we've co- we've combined the Charette Venture Group um, architecture business plan competition reception to award the winner and celebrate the winner, and uh, and have a meetup with all the small firm and the entrepreneur architect community and just hang out and have a good party. And so we brought those two communities together and had a good party. So. Nice little networking event and uh, good to see friends. And yeah, I mean, you guys are basically family now, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, cool. it was a good time. It was a really good time. So Very cool. Yeah. So we, we are Robert Hewn is here from monograph and uh, I want to kick off with um, letting Robert talk about monograph. What is monograph? Um, why did you create it? And how are you changing the world by creating it? Simple, easy question. Yeah. It's easy. I got it. So I'm Robert, CEO of Monograph. Uh, I was an architect, trained as an architect, did my master's at Michigan, uh, worked at Skidmore Owens and Merrill, and then transitioned and did a whole bunch of high-end residential, and continued to see a massive problem in how we track time and manage our budgets. So really, Monograph is trying to solve, uh, it's a project management tool and time tracking tool designed for, for small and mid-sized firms. And you started off, though, Monograph was 
a website building tool, right? That's correct. And is it still? Are you still doing that as well? We're or no you longer completely doing that. pivoted away from that. We, okay. we pivoted away. Okay. Um, See my tech existing. lingo right there. That's pretty <laughs> sweet. Uh, the product still exists. Uh-huh. We're just not allowing any new customers. Okay. So all of, our, all of our existing customers that are on our first version of Monograph websites. Yeah. Uh, is still paying customers. Okay. And as long as they enjoy it, we'll keep it alive. Okay. Cool. Yeah. How many are still on the platform then? On the website? Yeah, yeah. So we had we started off with around 700 architects using wow. Monograph websites. Nice. Um, it, the numbers come down a little bit. Uh, I think it's closer to around 600 600 firms there. They're uh, beautiful. I mean, that was the, really the draw, right? They're easy to easy to set up. They exactly. look really good. Yeah. So, this, so if we're going to talk a little bit techie and a little bit business wise, like it was just really difficult to compete with Squarespace and yeah. Wix and WordPress. Yeah. From a price perspe- uh, perspective, from like a volume perspective, like it, the business model just wasn't going to work. Uh, just offering websites for, for architects, like yeah. we weren't solving a really dire need. Right. Um, and unfortunately, when we when you don't do that as a business model, like you're just not going to get the, the traction to to run a really like sustainable business. Uh, Monograph now this version we'll call the Monograph dashboard, tracking time and managing fees is extraordinarily valuable for small practices. Sure. So it's like historically you do it either with a whiteboard or or an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Like there's there's a massive. No, those problem. people are not lined up for Delta. So so is it no literally way. is it literally like a timer system that gets fed into a database that's is that how it works? Uh, so it's a it's a web-based platform. How it works is it looks very similar to most other time-tracking software where you enter your project, you enter the hours you worked on. What's really unique is we just make it really seamless and really easy, really beautiful. Uh, we also segment out so that you can track multiple billable rates, which almost no other time-tracking does. Oh, okay. Because no, no other time-tracking software is designed for architects. Let's be honest, like small firms and mid-sized firms, you have to wear multiple hats your billable rates will fluctuate. Like even if you're a principal, you can't be building principal time the, the entire duration of a project. Uh, so we essentially bake that into when we're designing the software. Okay. Have any engineering firms picked it up? I mean, it's the same parallel there, right? We're talking to a few engineering firms, so we're, we're about to essentially start uh, onboarding consultants. The, the big mission for Monograph is we want to essentially capture all the professionals that make buildings happen. It starts with the architects, but it doesn't end with the architects. There's structural engineers, there's MEP engineers, there's seismic. Uh, there's there's a lot of essentially professional consultants that need to be on a project to make it happen. Do you guys have any kind of a I, I, since since a lot of projects start with architects and then they bring in the consultants mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sure you're kind of banking on those architects spreading <laughs> something that they see as incredibly valuable Correct. or excited about. So is there because you guys are a, a startup, small business, are, mm-hmm. are you guys doing affiliate? kind of things with those kind of firms or, or or how does that whole system your marketing system work so you can build this platform with the, the most number of users that, that you could see benefiting from this so we're, we're starting to explore affiliate programs uh, we're really happy to continue to work with Mark LePage on Entre on, on Architect and we can, ho- hopefully we can keep doing that but ideally we systematize the way so we can partner with everyone else in the industry seems like there's just got to be you've got to like try so many different things and yeah. you, you kind of have some freedom to experiment I would assume but yep. and see what works and what doesn't what, what we're really confident about which which really will will hold us the as a product uh, our long term mission is that we see the industry becoming more and more segmented based on consultants more and more specialized professionals oh, yeah. uh, we've seen that populate growth over the last five years and it's exponentially going to keep going mm. uh, there's a lot of market driven scenarios and this is due to like liabilities and architect passing liabilities and a lot like architects 
buildings are getting more complex. Uh, so building a project management tool that not only is siloed to one individual's organizations, but building the cross-organization collaboration is really where we're going to win. Um, so once that starts turning, uh, we won't absolutely need to be dependent on affiliates because the product itself will drive all the, yeah. the entire team to come on board. Okay, so it's called Monograph Dashboard. So talk mm -hmm. about the dashboard. Yeah. Like, tell me why, like, what am I, what are we seeing when we look at Monograph Dashboard? And, and why is that a compelling? So the, one right. of the hardest things is you have a lot of projects and it's very difficult to see all your projects all at once. What stage you're in, what phase they're in, who's working on it. Uh, so being able to really easy filter and know that at a glance is extraordinarily valuable. And then since we're doing time tracking with, uh, with employees, what's amazing is we, we have what we call the, the money gain, where as you fill out your timesheets, a little gain is just going to move uh, against your total fee for that phase. Like It's just a visual indicator of like how much fee you're burning in real time, which makes total sense because you, everyone has an hourly rate, and you should know at a very high level how much fee you burn and how much fee you have left. Yeah, I love the dashboard because I think that architects think that way. Mm -hmm. You know, that most financial management software and a lot of the project management software is built for the rest of the world, you know, and architects, for one, they're very visual. They, they want to see, you know, green lights when things are good and red lights when things are bad, right. you know, and, and we, we want to see beautiful things. When we use our software, I pick, uh, you know, one of the main components of picking software is how does it look? How, what's the user interface? Mm -hmm. Not only is it easy to use, but is it beautiful to look at? Especially when I'm using a software like Monograph, where I'm using it all day long because it's part of my time tracking. I'm looking at it constantly throughout the day. I want it to be beautiful, and I think that's one of the things that you've done, even through the websites, all the way through to what you're doing today. Yeah, and I, I think that helps, like, as being a tech founder with a design background, right. like, design is so important. It, it eases so much of the usability. It makes streamline the processes so much better. We solve problems with visuals first before we dive into like the data and the analytics. Um, and we're always going to be designed first as, a, as an organization. Um, so you said that the um, dashboard was more built for um, a small or a medium-sized firm. Do you mm -hmm. see it scalable for larger firms, or do you see it scaling in the future to, to larger firm use? It, absolutely. Like I, I believe right now the correlation between feature sets and, and size are like one-to-one, -one, which makes us really applicable right now for small to mid-size, uh, but I, we, we have an appetite to go, to go larger. What's your, how do you how are you getting the word out there besides being on podcasts like this? You know where you guys you guys have a marketing team where you're going out and you're knocking the door of HOK and stuff like that. You know SOM. I mean, how does it work? What's your sales? What's what's the the, the secret sauce? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's entree it's entree architect. It, yeah. it is entree architect. Yeah, Monograph is their their membership sponsor for us, oh, okay. and they've supported us for a long time. Mm -hmm. But recently, they they actually signed on as a as a member, and they support. Uh, our membership programs and, and oh, because uh, integrated, very yeah. nice, very yeah. nice. So, so uh, when you sign up for a membership, they have access to uh, to Monograph for a year, um, and that includes CVG as well as as partnerships. But I'll, I'll just I'll just tell you the secret sauce. Also, like it's SEO. Like I think when you're a design first company and, and everyone searches Google, we we have to essentially dominate the SEO world. Like we we have to be ready when architects are ready. 
And I think the the traditional sales strategy of knocking as many um, as many doors as possible doesn't quite work when you're trying to sell to professionals. Like we're busy. Yeah. Like we'll come to you when we when we know we're ready, and we need to just be ready when that happens. And the best way to solve that problem is to make sure we we spend a lot of time at SEO, uh, build content, and make sure that we're relevant, so that when architects find us, we're ready to go. Yeah, I like that. I don't like the. We even we even ended up putting like on our our glass door appointments only and we still get people coming through in the conference room like what are you doing here did i miss it? and then i then i panic and I look at my phone and i go i don't have an appointment what are you doing here <laughs> so i think that's smart it, it's so intr- intrusive like yeah. i don't like it we are very busy right like we're professionals we're busy with solving major problems from from infrastructure to buildings to parks seo yeah and I so like partnerships it. are great because it's an industry built upon relationships and we need to continue to build relationships as a core uh, success model for, for marketing and sales. But SEO is going to be a huge supplement to, to that model. Yeah. Robert, talk a little bit about the other things that you guys are doing. Because it's interesting from an architect's point of view with some of the uh, the, the niche sites that you've built. And I know <laughs> that's not part of, of Monograph, uh-huh. um, but I think architects would be interested in that because they have you know ideas. And that's part of your SEO strategy. You sort of built those to sort of learn yep. how to build uh, you know, competitive SEO, and they've done great with those. And so, what are some of those ideas that are separate from Monograph, but but uh, architects might be able to learn from? So, what's interesting is we took on a lot of these smaller projects to essentially tool up our own ability to to be very good SEO uh, professionals. Uh, and some of those projects, like HTML color codes, does million and a half views a month. Um, it's insane, incredible, and it's completely monetized by by ads. We're ranked number one on a number of different keywords that point right back to that site. And it's a great uh, source of revenue in terms of like architects looking for alternative supplemental revenue. Uh, if you find a niche, if you find a keyword that has a lot of volume, um, you can use that as a case study to essentially like optimize and, and win that keyword. And a revenue model will be having ads on that website. Yeah, it's 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 super interesting. It's htmlcolorcodes.com. We we so as a collective, we own a few. HTML color codes is the one that performs the best. Yeah. Uh, but we also have Chinese New Year. If you look up ChineseNewYear.net, we have we have that one as well. So we do experiment between tools and and content based uh, sites. Yeah, it's such a cool idea. I mean, so architects, you know, they're doing their daily thing. They come up with an idea. They search for it. It's not there. You could build this little niche site that solves this one little problem, like HTML color codes. Literally, is a is a converter. You're looking yep. for the code for a specific color. You pick the color. It tells you the code. That's all it is. It, it, it's, and so it's you do all a Google search for HTML color codes because that's what you're looking for. You land on that site, and you find it, and then you monetize it by putting ads on the site, and they make you know good good salary and you know, good money with with. Yeah, uh, I love it. You're diversifying through a series of ni- niches. Right. Like you went to the niche, 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 and you got all these legs to stand on. Yeah. And yeah. then you learn about SEO, and then you apply that to the to the mothership of Monograph. That's the whole goal, as individuals, we believe like trying and testing on a number of different small side projects, projects that are like the scopes are really small, but like we can gain a lot of lot knowledge, new knowledge or, or deeper knowledge by doing really short sprint uh, exercises. Um, SEOs, how do we do it? How do we structure content? How do we optimize? How do we rank? Uh, these are all common questions that don't only apply to, let's say, static HTML code color websites, but they can apply to an architect's core business, right? Their, their core website, 
How do you optimize so that they're ranked number one locally if they're doing a lot of local work? What does it take? How do you get there? Uh, what, what are backlinks? How do you get them? Because uh, these are really valuable assets as, as a small business owner in architecture to be ranked as high as you can locally if you're doing a lot of local work. And I'm going to do a quick little plug for the membership at Entree Architect. Robert did a, a master class on that, that specific topic where, you know, how do you build SEO, rank, get your rankings up on your, on your site for your, as an architect? Mm-hmm. And so he sort of went into the back, gave us a little bit of the secret sauce inside the membership. So anybody who has a, a membership yeah, has, name, ac- has access to that. <laughs> it, it might be after this podcast. <laughs> I love it, yeah. It should be. I feel like I'm getting a new, new nickname every time I go somewhere new, though. So today I'm secret sauce. Very cool. Uh, so, do you do any architecture work, or is it just are you? This is full time with you, uh, Mono, Monograph, and all the other websites that you talked about. Is that where is that where most of your time is spent at this point? So most. So we started off as an agency first. So we we're building software as a service. Uh, our side projects were, and this is just like a traditional service-based model. So we had our highs and low months, just like architecture. Yeah. So during our low months, that's when we did the side projects. Uh, we are now transitioned where we're 100% focused on monograph. Very cool. So there, we don't have any more clients, and this is the same stigma. Like, we were just really tired of client work. Uh, and, like, we really wanted to build a product that helps the industry. Like, me and my two co-founders are all trained as architects. Our backgrounds in architecture. All of our friends are architects. Uh, we can build software. Like, we really want, we're trying really hard to find what's, what's, the right, what's the right mission, what's the right type of project uh, to solve. Uh, to help the industry. Very cool. All right, so we just had Reg Prentice from Tonic DM join us, and Reg and Robert know each other, I think, pretty well already. But uh, we thought it'd be cool for you guys to overlap because, I mean, maybe you guys could just talk real quickly about how you know each other, maybe a little bit about Zero Sixty, and just where what what wild ride you guys have been on for the last, I don't know, six months. I think we saw both you guys at AU last year. so just maybe talk about that and, and help the other entrepreneurs maybe who, who might listen to this out there to, uh, about like kind of navigating what you've navigated to this point. So I'm Reg Prentice uh, with Tonic DM. We're the world's most advanced project information management system built specifically for architects and engineers. That's and, a great tagline. Yeah, that was <laughs> awesome. It's a long tagline. Um, <laughs> Robert and I met each other in the Trimble 060 Accelerator program, mm-hmm. which we did last year, which was a program set up by Trimble to help young startup companies uh, develop and grow within the industry. Uh, I think Robert and I hit it off because we both have similar ideas about software for the design industry, which is things that are easy to use, uh, resonate with designers, uh, and are just practical tools uh, for getting your work done in a design firm on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Uh, no, I think you've nailed it. Just helping helping architects get get the job done. Yeah, yeah. And I think doing it in a way which is very easy doesn't require a ton of training, uh, doesn't disrupt the firm's normal processes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in contrast to a lot of other technologies which are a big workflow disruption and require the architects to change their workflow. I think we're interested in systems which just fit right in and help architects in their day-to-day work. Reg, can you talk a little bit more specifically about what the, the tool is and how it works? Most of the community who's listening here are probably smaller firms, uh, mid, to, mid to small firms, and so how does that work with, with them and what do they do? Okay, 
So one of the main problems we solve is uh, correspondence, email management. So even in a small firm, you're going to have a variety, a number of different staff members and a number of different projects. So we make it really easy for the staff to organize their email by project. So uh, everyone in the firm can see what's happening um, on each project rather than those emails being locked away in individual mailboxes. Um, we also handle uh, file transfer. So it's always tricky to send large files through email. So we have a system which is as easy to use as email, but you can attach large files to it, and it creates a transmittal automatically. It logs when those files are downloaded. And then tracking RFIs and submittals. So we even have customers that are sole proprietors who just use our system for the file transfer capability and the RFI and submittal tracking because those are things which, uh, you know, you, you can do them yourself in Excel or just uh, kind of uh, through Dropbox but it's nice to have it in a system which is project-based. So everything is filed under its project, and it's in a standardized format. Are you an architect? Uh, I do. I, I wouldn't say I'm an architect, but I went to architecture but you're school. trained as an architect. <laughs> I graduated architecture. I actually started at Frank Geary's office. So after school, I moved from New Zealand to Los Angeles and spent 11 years working with Frank Geary mm -hmm. uh, on the technology side. So I was part of the IT team. And I enjoyed it because with a background in architecture, you know, and being a technology-focused person, you know, where's better to work in that right. environment than Frank Geary's office? Uh, and then I spent uh, nine years at Gensler in Los Angeles after that. So it was a little bit of a switch from a smaller firm uh, with a kind of sole founder mentality to a very large firm where there are multiple studios, multiple principles, kind of global design uh, business. Uh, so I feel like I got both sides of the coin on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's what? What's sort of the? What was the the origin story? What was the 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 uh, the seed that created the, the the what you're doing today? So at uh, Geary's office and at Gensler, my role uh, was specifically around information management. So I, I dealt a lot with CAD, less with 3D, but a lot just with the process of design documentation. Uh, how information flows between the GC and the architect, the consultants, back to the architect, back to the GC. And I never, I, I felt there, was, there wasn't a tool on the market which really made that easy for offices. There are some tools on the market for managing that, but they are just cumbersome. There's a lot of friction. Sometimes they're just too expensive, so they're yeah. just priced out of particularly the small firm range. And I felt there was a real uh, missing element there that needed to be filled for the profession because obviously uh, as professionals we want to keep great records and have and be very organized so that we're professionals but I, I just didn't feel there was a good system that was easy to use and priced affordably uh, for that purpose yeah very interesting I don't know what you guys just talked about because I just we're saw talking about you. I just <laughs> saw Roman Mars he's oh, right yeah. there and I told him we're recording our podcast here so he's basically here with us right now right Roman yeah. <laughs> uh, on the Rcast. Yeah, on the Rcast. Uh, so, I, I, like I said, I don't know what you guys just talked about, but uh, Reg, we're we're using Tonic in our office, and I think what you were talking about as far as ease of use and something getting out of the way is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. One of the things that your guys' stuff does is it automates, like it learns as you go, mm -hmm. right? If you have a, a project set up, it's trying to learn and, and take away the back of house work that 
people have to do by themselves. Right. Well, one of the, the there's two forms of kind of ease of use. One is when you're setting the system up and configuring it. A lot of technologies is just beyond any architecture firm uh, that doesn't have professional IT people. Yeah. So we've designed this specifically so that it's super easy to set up. Uh, you can get started very quickly. It's it's more of a consumer style uh, of uh, system setup, like something you just expect. You just log in and it works, right? You don't have to do some crazy yeah. IT stuff to get it set up. So even large firms appreciate that because no one has extra IT time. IT yeah. is always overwhelmed. Right. So that's one part of the ease of use. More and more work is falling on their shoulders every day. So yeah, anything that you can do. Because of the more we be, we're actually becoming technology companies who do architecture. That's how I, I frame it in, in our right. fir, uh, the size of firm that we are. So I, I think right. that that the, the burden is becoming more and more increased on a very small team, typically. Right. So, so we try to take that burden off by just having software which just works. Yeah. And the second one is for the staff. Like, people just don't have time to do elaborate training right now. Like, Revit, yeah, okay, you will go to training for that. But for email management and file sharing, are you really going to spend days <laughs> in training learning to use it? So we typically give a 30-minute overview for the staff. Because they need to know this is a new system the office is going to use. This is how we're going to manage the information. But they don't really need to be shown how to use Tonic because it's just easy to use, right? We, we cut down the number of buttons. We spent a long time removing buttons from our software because more buttons just means more overhead, more complexity. And we want this to be as simple as possible for the staff to use uh, so they don't require elaborate training and they can get good value out of the system. That's cool. So with, with the 060 Accelerator program, can you guys just talk about, we, we've mentioned that on our show before, just to kind of talk about, you know, one of the things that has definitely been identified over and over again in the architectural profession is the very low amount of uh, innovation over time, right? And, right? and so it seems to me like Accelerator programs like that, and there's a few of them out there, but that's one, and just to tie it all together, Lucas and German were both students of mine at Cal Poly, uh, now they're doing this cool thing, you know. That it's coming out of uh, Gary Technologies. Now they're now Trimble bought it. Now they're running this zero sixty accelerator, which is awesome, right? They're they're trying to do something for the profession, right? And they're investing or in many different types of ways, whether it's office space or ideas or mm -hmm. or dollars, even in some cases, right? To to get ideas like your guys off the ground. So can you just talk about what that program is? Because Lucas isn't here right now, but maybe represent right. what they're doing. And so people can look it up and just look into If they have entrepreneurial ideas, maybe there's, maybe there's help that they can get. Yeah. Uh, the website, I believe, is 060.io. Okay. And they have applications open right now uh, for their new cohort mm -hmm. for 2019. And so they do four, four different... Like they, a cohort is like four companies. Is that how uh, it works? I think it's 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 a small cohort, but I yeah. think it's it's variable. Okay. Uh, they'll look at it's the applicants okay. and and try to find good fit for the program. Right. Uh, I think innovating in architecture specifically is very very difficult because architects need professional software. You know, it's not uh, it's not a toy. Yeah. <laughs> and so. Uh, when you're building a piece of software, you can't uh, just code something up overnight and then expect people to buy it, yeah. right? They need something which is pretty mature 
before it really works in a professional situation. Yeah. So it makes innovation quite difficult for startup companies because you have to get a long way with the technology before you can expect people to pay for it and actually use it in an office. Yeah. And and I don't say that as a negative. I think that's just the way the profession is. It's a it's a it's a profession and it's a very important profession and you can't sell people toys. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I think getting over that hurdle of you have to create a really great product before people are willing to pay for it. That's one of the the hurdles in our area. Yeah, I think because it's so complicated to make a building, and like software needs to also address complicated issues. Like Monograph, the Monograph dashboard right now, like it took two years to build before we, before our first beta user was even using it. Um, it's because there's there's so much work to make sure we covered before we even hit uh, our, our MVP, our, our, our minimum viable product. Um, it just takes a long time. That said, yeah. like back back to zero sixty, like I, it's an amazing program. Just the ability of connecting other startups together, yeah, um, and sharing like purposed individuals, like, like purposed like individuals, not, yeah. not necessarily like minded, right? But I always like to go back to like purpose because you guys want to make every, this stuff better for people. Yeah, like that's really the goal. And, and I applaud Trimble and Lucas and German for working on this because they're trying to get the startups to help the startups over that hump. Right. And they do that by, uh, as you said, offering some office space, uh, a lot of ideas and, and kind of um, assistance with that. Like uh, we're implementing an idea now that German introduced me to. And it's just like, it's transformational for us. You want to talk about your future plans? Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we don't mind talking about our future okay. plans. Cool. So um, I was going to say, uh, any help that you get from companies like Trimble is really valuable to startups because it is so hard in this industry. I think what's so neat about that is Trimble's a big company. Right. right? And, and there's only a few of these big companies. And to see the way that they're investing in very small companies right. to help your ideas get big is very different than the way other companies work. Yeah. I mean, a lot of companies are just looking out for themselves, right? And to right. me, this is definitely a gesture in, that is different than that. Yeah. And they're both great, great people with a deep understanding of the industry. So working right. with them and with the other people in the cohort, with right. uh, mm -hmm. Ian and Robert and right. in our case, that was huge. Like Robert said, uh, it can be very lonely out there. <laughs> and uh, yeah. having a, a team of like-minded uh, people is really great. Like purpose. Like, like purpose people. <laughs> like purpose people. Yeah. No, I, I find that way, for me personally, that was the number one asset in terms of joining the program. Uh, because what I get paired with a similar startup uh, in, in a similar phase. And we can address similar problems together and work on them together. Uh, and that that means so much versus being siloed in, in our own in our own office and trying to to resolve problems by just throwing darts at a at a dartboard. So I asked Robert the same question: Is are you seeing any other design professions pick up your software and start to start utilize it well? I mean, there's a lot of parallels, right? Engineers work in the right. same sort of methods. So we focus on A and E. So uh, a lot of our best customers are actually engineers. We find when it comes to organization of information, that gels immediately with engineers because they think kind right. of in an organized way. So, uh, so engineers, uh, definitely, as well as architects. Outside of that, we haven't, we haven't focused on that demographic. Technically, Tonic would work for any company that uses project numbers. Uh, so 
any professional services company could probably use it. But we have tried to remain very focused on AE uh, just because we want to we want to capture that market, and so we're staying very focused on that at the moment. Can you also make a piece of software that would uh, enable them to answer the phone quicker or return calls? Because that's a <laughs> bane of my existence with engineers. It's uh-huh. a joke. <laughs> well, I'm thinking like the phone has almost become useless now because 90% of the calls are just spam. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Like, I hardly answer my phone anymore because yeah. it's the Social Security Administration telling me my, my, right. my numbers oh, being compromised. IRS, right? Yeah. 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 I have a question that I'm always interested in with, with uh, people who were trained as architects who have gone off into a different path and have become focused more on, on the tech side. Um, that transition from, okay, I'm, I'm an architect, I've been trained as an architect, I've invested my time and my money and my brain power uh, to become an architect, and then something happens in your career and you see there's a new path. That point, was that a difficult transition to make that, um, that, that transition, and, and how did you do that? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take, a, first. take a first stab. Uh, I know how to code a little bit, but I'll be completely transparent. I write zero code. Like even though I'm trained as architect now, running a tech company, I write zero code. I don't. I'm not a software engineer. I would never call myself a software engineer. Uh, so where where I think the architectural education becomes super valuable is mm-hmm. knowing how to contextualize problems. Right. Like we're at the core, we're still solving problems. Uh, we're still trying to make things for a specific audience. Uh, this is no different than when I was designing a building. It's just the context of how I'm solving it is a little bit different, and the medium and how I execute that is also a little bit different. Yeah. So in how, that, how do you, so do you do any do you do like storyboards? I mean, how are you sort of laying out what we're like what the vision is? We draw all the time in the office. We sketch all the time in the office. We, we're architects are visual, so what the only way to really solve for a visual audience is we also have to be visual in our approach to solving problems. So we, we draw a lot in the in the office, and like one of the core problems of almost any software, not just project management software, is double entry, right? Where you're where you're repeatedly asked the same information in multiple areas of yeah. the software. To solve that, there's no really other, other way to lay out the context. Like how many times are we going to ask this question? And let's make sure that we don't present, we don't ever ask architects to enter the exact same information ever more than once. Um, there's no you cannot simply solve that problem by just writing code like you have to really understand the landscape of, of the situation uh, the, the following question was like was it hard it w- wasn't really that hard I think it was like a long slow transition mm-hmm. like I immediately so it was an evolution it was an evolution like immediately after my MRC and MS degree at Michigan I started a project called section cut sectioncut.com yep. which was a curated collection of architectural resources uh, for students Really, it was a personal project. I finished my MR degree. I was working on my portfolio before my, my tenure at, at SOM. Um, and I wanted a way to essentially archive everything I learned in graduate school. How do I save all the plugins to Rhino, all the digital tools that I was using? How do I save all the scripts? How do I save all the, the, the text? How do I save all the theory books? Like, I don't want to forget, forget that knowledge. And that's really how, how Sexual was was formed. So I kind of always had one foot in, one foot out mm-hmm. in terms of like building little projects. And was that was that mindset shift? Did that happen at Section Cut or Monograph, where you went from the label "I'm an architect who's doing tech" uh. to now I'm a tech entrepreneur who is, is an architect? So 
I think that happened when when I stopped working in architecture. So me and my two co-founders, Alex so early Mark, on, early on, yeah, we decided to pair up. We were all essentially freelancing on the side, and it was like, well, we can command a larger fee if we weren't considered freelancers, yeah, right. We can we can now essentially have a, a little bit more value-based pricing because now we're seen as a company and not individuals providing uh, freelancer consultancies. So when we paired up and started Dixon and Mo or or, uh, or our umbrella co- company, yeah. Um, I stopped labeling myself as an architect because I'm not building, I'm not designing buildings anymore. Yeah, yeah. What about you're the true software architect, though? That's such a contentious label, but you're (laughs) it. I finally met it. You're the software architect. (laughs) I have a new nickname, right? Like I've transitioned (laughs) secret sauce to like software architect. What about you, Red? For me, it was a difficult uh, transition. Uh, I've always considered myself an architectural professional. Um, even at school, I started writing code. So like Robert, I have a background in kind of coding. I was never particularly good at it. always like an enthusiastic amateur. Yeah. Uh, but for example, when uh, Frank Gehry's office spun off Gehry Technologies, I, I chose to stay with Gehry Partners because I always wanted to be part of the architecture firm and part of the architecture process rather than a technologist. Yeah. But over time... I came to realize that my contribution to the profession as a whole was going to be in the technology field. Uh, It's definitely not going to be in the design field, that's for sure. So at that point, I started to transition in my mind that, you know, if I'm going to make a lasting contribution to the profession, then I need to embrace the idea that I'm I'm going to be a technologist primarily for the architecture space. And I guess to follow up on that, Reg, since and both you guys, since you worked at larger firms, you didn't feel like you could do that in the firm. You felt like you really wanted to solve a problem that was much larger than just that user base. Because like that's me. I'm director of digital practice at HMC Architects, and and HMC is a 350 person firm, and I'm trying to solve problems, and I'm looking for people like you guys to help me solve those problems, but we're also writing our own code. We're doing our own scripting, and we are building our own tools that solve our specific problems. So you, I guess the question is, you really felt like your calling was bigger than that. I think there's a type of problem where it is uh, absolutely the role of the firm to build tools to solve that problem. Yeah. And there are problems where it's absolutely not in the interests of the firm totally. to try to solve that problem. Uh, and but I've we're architects. We can do everything, <laughs> and we should do it all yeah. right now. Like yeah. the number of small firms that use Excel as their accounting system because right. they don't want to spend 20 bucks a month on QuickBooks, right? right. Oh. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I think it's hard. There's a point at which it's hard for firms to determine, is this something we should do or is this something we should let totally. an outside professional firm do? Yeah. And a lot of firms end up going down the path of creating tools which are then too big for them to maintain. They, they Without the maintenance, they fall into disuse and that energy and that money ends up getting wasted. So I think it's, it's important for firms to really think hard before they decide to either do heavy customization on a tool or to build a tool from scratch because a lot of times it's just outside the, the reasonable purview of the firm to build that tool. And I certainly felt that with Tonic, it needed to be done. Like I was with Gensler. Gensler has a lot of resources, but I felt you know, even if Gensler wanted to put the resources in, it just wasn't the right kind of thing for Gensler to be building internally. It was more appropriate for an outside firm to, to tackle that. 
You know, one of the reasons I love that question of mindset shift and labeling is because I, I think you can't do both. Like they, I think a lot of architects, they want to be an architect and they want to go pursue this other big idea. Um, and when you try to do both, neither of them succeed at the level that you want them to. And so you need to either choose, I'm going to be an architect and build an architecture firm, or I'm going to go pursue this other idea. And maybe you still have your hand in architecture, but your primary focus right. has to be one or the other if you really want to succeed right. at that. I think tools that would be relevant for an architecture firm to try to build themselves would be tools which specifically differentiate them in design. So, for example, if you're building uh, grasshopper scripts yep. that produce a particular shape or particular kind of design that that you want to explore as a designer, then totally go ahead and do it because that's your differentiator is design. But if you're building general office tools, like if you're trying to build your own accounting system yeah. uh, or, or resource management system like Robert has, then that's not going to differentiate you as a design firm. Yeah. So you, you really want to be buying that off the shelf. Well, as we transition to our next guest here, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you guys. Uh, you very much like a couple of the previous guests we had. We had Upcodes and Iris VR here. You guys are solving real problems for a variety of architecture firms out there, and I think that you know, you're supporting the profession. And Reg, you've lectured in my class a couple times, and you're, you're and it's not a sales pitch about your software. It's about what do architects best value? How are right. we how, how are we contributing? And you're definitely contributing, both of you guys are, to our profession. And right. so I wanted to yeah. personally thank you. And thanks for coming yeah. to record thanks with us Evan. today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you're you welcome. for having before us. You, before you go, just why don't you plug how people can oh, yeah. you know, reach out to, to you and how they can access what you're doing. Sure. Uh, our website is monograph.io. So feel free to sign up. There's a little chat bubble in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, someone will be there to answer any immediate questions. Let's say if you do want to reach me, uh, I... I address all my emails, robert at monograph.io. Uh, it might take me a day, give me 24 hours. <laughs> um, pretty pretty busy now, but I get I get through everything within a 24-hour window. All right, great. Reg, how about you? And like uh, Monograph, Tonic is very easy to sign up for. Our web address is tonicdm, as in documentmanagement.com. Uh, we have the little chat bubble too, so feel free to send us a message. <laughs> uh, leave your email address in the chat uh, so we can get back to you efficiently. Uh, you can actually sign up online, but usually we discuss the product with people first and kind of walk them through the setup. But very quick and uh, very quick to get started and, and to try it. And we're we're very happy to work with small firms, medium or large firms. All right, great. Well, thank you both for uh, coming and hanging out with us for a little bit here. Great. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Thank you. So our next guest is the best friend. Yeah, Lance, you want to introduce our next guest? Nicholas Renard. Thanks. Hello. An American treasure. National treasure. He's a national treasure. Yeah, he's going to tell us a story. From Jacksonville. Oh, God. What am I telling the story so about? You didn't, you didn't bring a book? I didn't bring a book. I thought that. you were going to read not for reading. us. No, that's only special. Yeah, that's special for the besties. What have you been up to? Just walking around this morning. Yeah, but in practice. You're busy. You're a busy guy. You're building now. Oh, I make it look a lot busier than we are. Yeah. But we, got, we have a couple big houses that we're working on. Uh, one we're building. It'll be our second new build house. Uh, we're bill bidding right now in the process of bidding two other houses, uh, but those are more remodels. And then we got uh, two new build houses that are potential builds. Yeah. So, so it's changing. Yeah. When we started our construction arm, this is the one question I was going to ask you on our podcast, but I'll do it now, is when we started our construction arm, 
we, we, the subs that we got, some were brand new. We never worked with them before. And some were, I literally poached them from good GCs, and I asked for permission first. Was it sort of the same process with you when you, went to, when you started building? I mean, I wouldn't say I poached, but I've been on job sites quite a bit through my career, and I knew who I wanted to call from working with them on other projects with other contractors. So, um, yes, in a sense I poached, but I didn't, I didn't cold call anybody. Okay. Everybody was there. Everybody was there. Yeah, yeah. So where are you guys at in the building process right now on the on the house that you're building? <laughs> you guys are almost dried in, right? We are 100% dried in. Okay. They're doing exterior siding today, which is nerve-wracking because I'm here. <laughs> and for the yeah. first time ever, we're using Hardy Aspire siding. So that's going on the house right now. Um, they also scratch What could coated. go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Nothing, right? They're scratch-coating the stucco in today, which in the jurisdiction we're building, the inspectors insist on seeing the nailing pattern on the hardy and insist on seeing the scratch coat before they brown coat it, Yeah, which is just a nightmare. Um, Scheduling-wise. Scheduling it. Yeah. And on top of that, um, our electrical uh, component, our jurisdiction there, JEA, requires that our homeowner calls in to get their meter set. And I think my homeowner got a little confused. And there was some miscommunication, and so there was a lot of running around this morning trying to figure out if we had power or not, which we don't yet. Yeah. Our previous guest, one of the things topics that just came up was, you know, they're, they're, te- they're essentially tech entrepreneurs at this point. And so uh, we talked about having your foot in, and they were architects, trained as architects, having your foot in, in two different places. So, you know, you and I are similar in the sense that we're architects and builders, and my, it, was, it was a big wake-up call for me about two weeks ago with Alex. And I, we, have, we were on site, and I go, hey, I just I can't take on any more clients right now. I, ha- I need to be here 100% of the time. How do you, how do, you do it? Like, have you, are you at that point, too, where you're like, I need to multiply. There needs to be another. We need to clone Nick. We've always needed to clone Nick. You need more <laughs> national treasures. I mean, Absolutely. One Nick is only awesome. One. <laughs> 13 Nicks would be superior. Yeah. Um, but what does Nick think? Nick loves Nick, so of course Nick would like to see more Nick. Um, I, I do. I hired a one of the best employees I've ever had last fall, and she's been awesome in helping get everything done. You know, usually when clients come in um, or people ask how you're getting it all done, and I'm like, well, I'm not getting it done. I work on two projects. Cami does everything else. Yeah, which is somewhat the case. Um, but we're not not taking new work, um, but we are getting a little more selective in what we take on. Yeah. Does that include building sites? So, you know, one of the rules of thumbs, Jonathan Segal has this rule of thumb, and I live by it. Is if, if you're gonna, I haven't seen him today. I right. hope he's, I told him to stop by. He hasn't checked his messages today. Um, but that is, you got to be, his rule of thumb is 30 minutes or less. I'm only buying this site and building on it 30 minutes or less from my house I have because I have to be within that close of contact. Are you in that? Do you, have you been afforded that ability with this latest build and the previous one? Yeah, so we're fortunate in in where most of our work is. I can get to most of my sites in 20 minutes, and most of my work is in a very condensed area. The um, we'll only build at the beaches in Northeast Florida because we know we can get to each one of those sites in less than 20. Um, we do have a client pushing us to stretch us a little bit further. We may do it from a construction management point, but we're not going to be his GC. 
because I can't be there every day. Right, exactly. exactly. So I have a question for, for you, Lance, and you, Nick, because you guys have – Nick, you, you just said you, you made one of the, the best hires, and obviously you guys have grown over the last few years uh, into what you're doing at F9, right? So when, when you think back to before you had that employee and when you guys were just doing it yourselves at F9 – you know, where did you see yourself in the future? I don't know how many years or whatever, but, you know, it, at some level it's probably like, I can't afford to do this, and now that you've done it, you couldn't have afforded not to do it, kind of a, a, a thinking. I just maybe riff on that. And, and where, where have you been? Where have you come? How did you make those decisions? And then as you guys have grown at F9 too, like you guys are, you guys are almost a, going to move into another office soon right yeah. like in, in your development so there's a lot going on i'm sure a lot has happened over these over these years but you want me to go first lance I'll, I'll i'll just say one comment and then you go okay and that is the best decision we ever made was to hire a bookkeeper that's actually who we hired almost it was almost at the same time as our real first employee because that took a whole level of stuff I didn't have to deal with anymore. The we were at the point where we could afford to pay somebody who isn't billable because she's not billable um, to handle the taxes. Um, we were both getting mortgages at the same time, so we had to really reconcile our books. It took us off Excel, brought us into QuickBooks, and now we're streamlined in that way. And I think that, that kind of opened then the next door to be able to select the right people to hire after that. That were, you know, One of the big questions I ask everybody when they go to F9 is, like, are you comfortable being in the field? And they go, yeah, uh, I would love to walk around. No, no, no. Are you comfortable swinging a hammer? Yeah. And they go, and that's, they have to be comfortable with that. I need them to be out there and doing blue-collar work. Um, and they learn from it. So yeah. that's cool. Nick, before you before you answer that question, I want to introduce our, our next guest here, who I want to overlap this conversation. Okay. Uh, this is Jared Zern from NCARB. And so uh, you want to just introduce yourself, Jared? And then, uh, and then I'd love to sort of have you get into this conversation here. Uh, well, thank you very much. My name is Jared Zern. I currently am the Vice President of Examination at the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards, which means I oversee the operation and development of the architect registration exam. Uh, prior to joining NCARB, I was a small practitioner, a sole proprietor in northern Minnesota, and I also taught at a community college. You're the NDSU alum, right? I am an NDSU. All right, go Bison. Yeah, me too. North, I'm Lance, yeah. North Dakota State North University. Dakota State. I thought so. Yep. Yeah. I was I was super happy they picked somebody from our alma mater. That makes the most sense. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, Evan, back to your question. Yeah. Like, there was a point a year ago where I was just killing myself. Yeah. Every night, seven days a week up till 3 a.m. working uh, to try to keep up. And... I, I kind of was try, mental I tried, instability, Nick, that we knew right then. Yeah, yeah. No, that was normal, Nick. Um, <laughs> now I'm starting to. It's, the shakes are going away. The shakes are gone. <laughs> the voices are still there, so it's all good. Um, so I tried to go the route that Lance went uh-huh. by hiring somebody to do some of that, um, the, the work that you can't really bill for, but you need to get done. Yeah. I offered my wife a job, and in five minutes she turned me down. Um, <laughs> But it's funny because now she's like, well, maybe maybe it's time that I come work for you. And I said, no, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the economic signal is kind of showing that we might slow down here, and you, we need your job to be stable, so you stay being a teacher for Interesting, now. Interesting, yeah. Um, but I've over the years, I'm, I made some hires quickly and poorly, and they did some damage. 
so I was really gun shy to hire. I ended up hiring an intern from Cincinnati, which is my alma mater. Um, they have a co-op program, so it was a three, four month commitment. If if she was good, great, we'll get some more work done. If she's so-so, all right, we'll get a little bit done. Oh, sorry, I'm, i got to eat the mic. Eat the mic. Um, and then in that time, another young lady applied to my firm, and I hired her, and it was like all of a sudden all the burden's gone. Wow. Because I had two people working. The right people. Yeah. And then my intern went back to school, <laughs> <laughs> and we started building, and I don't have another intern, and um, – we're starting to look maybe for another project manager role. And it was funny because uh, my PM now, she was all on board of, she's like, yeah, we should get another girl in here. I'm like, all I've ever hired is women. Yeah. And which is, I don't have, for some reason, guys don't want to apply to dig architecture. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but it's intimidating. I, I, yeah, apparently, height. <laughs> my height. I'm, I'm just, I tower over people. And um, I think pe- guys just don't want to look up to me. So um, I, uh, so, but she has a construction background. And, and that's, I asked her the same question that Lance asked. I was like, are you going to be comfortable working in the field? Because you're going to work in the field. Yeah. And she was Initially, all gung ho. Let's let's get another girl in here. Da 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 da. And then we had a site cleanup where we lifted lumber all day and moved it around. She's like, you know, maybe a guy wouldn't be so bad to have around. You know, some somebody with a little more muscle. So, you know, we're gonna look. We're gonna be selective. But at the pace um, that we're getting projects and construction projects, yeah. it's gonna get ridiculous. Really. Fast. Have you learned? So I, I felt like that was one of the best lessons we've learned so far at F nine was hiring the wrong people. We've hired, I think we hired two of the wrong people, and one we ended up firing, and then one kind of went their own way at the perfect time. It was like, yeah, this isn't working out. So, you know, if you picked up anything in your practice where you're like, okay, now I'm going to run them through. This is this is the way I'm going to hire. I'm going to ask these kind of questions. I'm going to maybe bring them into the firm one day, and they're going to do a simple task. I'm going to see how they work out. You know, besides all the qualifications, you already see the resume, the degree, all the other stuff. So, yeah, we, we do kind of do that. We go through several interviews. We sit down as a small team and meet with them. And then once we get in, you know, we use this program. It's called Revit Rocket Ship. Oh, yeah. To train, our, uh, train our employees <laughs> to get them up on board. Um, these two guys did it. and it's RevitRocketShip.com. RevitRocketShip.com. Right yeah. It's pretty awesome. Learn um, Revit fast and easy. Yeah, so it, it was great. We I've, I've gone through the tutorial three times now. And, you know, you, you learn a little bit something more. I think I pick up on stuff. I mean, there's stuff that and as we watch it as a studio when we bring a new employee in because there are some things that are in that program that we don't do. And so we can quickly say, no, we're, we, this, is, this is how they do it. This is how we do it. It's a little different. But for the most part, it's a good foundation for them to build on. And it gets everybody kind of working on the same way because, as you know, Lance, using Revit, and Cormac, who just sat down, who doesn't have a mic, <coughs> who uses Revit. You know, people can go in all different directions with Revit. And it, if you're not on the same page, it's trying to get into somebody else's files a nightmare. Yeah, the, yeah. Thing, the things that you guys are talking about as small firm owners um, are things that, that we're all struggling with. And I think that there are uh, several organizations like the AIA are, are doing things to try to help us do those things. And carb with Jared, uh, what he's doing, and so I wanted to just sort of bring Jared into this conversation by asking Jared, what are some of the things that NCARB is doing um, that could help 
practitioners like like Nick and and Lance uh, sort of solve some of those problems, bringing p- new new architects into the profession. Yeah. Well, I'll pick up a little bit on on what Nick was saying, even in interviewing. I mean, so NCARB people think it's this big organization, but the reality is we're small teams. We're a bunch of small teams inside of NCARB. So working on the exam, we're only six people, and I will tell. Like any small firm values and culture fit is critical so we just hired some new staff on our team and that's what we start with it's a multi-interview process lance like you said we bring them in and we have to do exercises as part of the interview process like we really have to make sure it's the right person that's going to help our team grow because one bad person on a small team is poison and we've all learned i think we've all learned that the hard way so it's the slow to hire right make sure you've got that right person um, I think from an NCAR perspective, what we're really looking at it is that culture. And we have really shifted our culture in the last, you know, five to seven years. I don't know how many of you have gone through NCAR programs prior to that. Um, there was a lot of negative press when I started NCARB. 4.1 was my test. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure you might have gotten a letter from most of us. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. Possibly. And that's okay. And, right, and I think the reality is I started at NCARB 11 years ago. And... To some degree, 11 years ago, the attitude was like, yeah, why are you bought? You know, I, okay, send me your email. I'll ignore it. <laughs> and I'll tell you, the, the difference is today, if you send an email, like, we're on it. And we're like, you know, what's going on? What are your challenges? And the good news story I'll share is I got an email yesterday from a licensure candidate that was testing in North America, was relocated to um, Argentina. We opened a test center in Argentina down there so she could test. She relocated to China. She's able to test over in China. I got the email yesterday saying, I'm done. I passed my last ARE exam. Like, that's a great news story to realize that NCARB is really here to help people go through the licensure process. And small firms, you are the front line of really helping people become licensed. Well, yeah, my feedback, quick feedback would be that 4.1 was, that's what I went through. It was, I just... I just did it. And um, it sounds like, and then my business partner was half in 4.1 and then the new, in 5. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then now, now our employees are taking, one guy has two tests left. We're pretty excited about it. We're hoping he gets, we get another license in the firm. And it sounds like it is moving in the positive direction. You know, we don't hear these, we, I, the kind of complaints that he's telling me about, I'm like, yeah, you didn't, you didn't have to do the graphic exercise. Mm-hmm. You, the last minute you didn't move the circle. It's work going way better for you. So yeah, I think you guys. I think you guys are on the right track. Um, yeah. It seems. It seems more fluid. That's that's good to hear. I will say, um, the reality of the thing is, we all know I was a, a 3.0 candidate when I took the exam. And right, I have my horror stories, and I'm like, oh well, yeah, you don't know what it's really like. And if any of us <laughs> talk to somebody who took the paper and pencil exam, they're going to tell oh, us, yeah. oh, you yeah. don't know what it's really yeah. like. I, you know, I had to take the paper pencil exam. And what we have to remember though is, every new candidate doesn't have that history. So everybody wants the Amazon experience. Our right. clients want the Amazon experience. And so that's actually what NCARB is looking at, is how do we give you best in service, which is a really a new way of thinking about it. And I'm sure everybody out there is thinking that same thing. How do you give your clients that best in service? Even though you're a s- small firm, you know that's great and hands-on, but they're also thinking you know, big firm technology, and they want to see it coming out of the small firms. I have a random question. So the green papers that get sent to your local state DORA office or, or wherever, right, that, were, that allow you to, from NCARB to the state office, and then they see, oh, yeah, they passed. Is there any way those can ever get unlocked and you can ha- you can have access to them to see what you scored on? I've always been interested to see, like, 
I feel like I ace structures. I'm not joking. Like, that was the <laughs> easiest one for me. And I was like, I, I want to just like frame that. I know I aced that test. So, Lance, you really don't want to know uh, <laughs> because you may not have aced it. And as long as you pass by one point, it's congratu- all that matters. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reality is, we are we're never going to look behind the cover on on the scores and. Historically, they did. So you know, back in the paper pencil days, state licensing boards and the candidates would actually get their test score, like a numerical test score. The problem was people started to use it for the wrong reason. And so when you're looking to hire somebody, would you want somebody who, well, okay, Lance got a 96 on structures. That's amazing. But if the next person walks in and got a 97... Does that mean they're a better hire? And that's not an appropriate use of, of what the architect licensing totally fair, exam is totally about. Fair, yeah. Yeah. That, that would have no play in my studio. Yeah. I, I told my, so when my last intern left, she's like, how could I improve my resume? And I said, honestly, you got a lot of space dedicated to your GPA. I'm like, I don't care what your GPA is. I, I want to see that you can have design sensibility in both your portfolio and how you put your resume together. So when you have this page-and-a-half resume and there's a quarter of it that's all about how great academically you are, I don't really care about that. It's, we're in a subjective um, profession where if your studio doesn't, professor didn't like you, you get a C. Yeah. Or right. doesn't like your design. doesn't mean you had a bad design. In most people's opinion, it mattered, it mattered to him or her. So I said, don't, don't. <laughs> in our yeah. field, it doesn't mean as much. Yeah, right. I've, I've, it's always baffled me, you know, 10 years down in someone's career, and they're still, you know, saying I graduated from blah 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 with yeah, you know, magna cum laude. I'm like, eh, okay, but does that really matter anymore? I mean, you know, once you're 10 years in, I'm looking more for your experience. I'm yeah. looking for what you can do, what you can bring to the table, and enrich our firm. Yeah. You you, did you graduate magna cum laude, and all of a sudden you got lazy? Yeah. Exactly. Or did you, did you graduate with like a B average, and you had this incredible drive? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And I think everybody looks at it from the perspective of, you know, what can they bring for your future of your firm, right? Because you hire in the moment. We all do. We all hire in the moment. But we have to keep our eye on what's coming five and ten years down the road because that's what really is where success is going to matter. Everybody, I mean, a lot of people can start a firm and that firm can go out of business six months later. It's can you start a firm? Can you keep it going? Can you grow the firm like you guys were talking about? And then, you know, what is that future? What's the profession going to be five and ten years from now that we're all reacting to? So (laughs) real quick, I wanted to double back on uh, just a thought I had or a question that I had for you guys. When you guys are hiring and looking at new hires, um, do you, especially with the big push towards new technologies and things like that, are you guys actually looking for people who can come in you know, I, I have this, um, you know, I, I always use this uh, statement every time I'm talking about, you know, we've got the experience, and typically the experience doesn't know the software, and the you know, people who know the software typically don't know the, exp- you know, don't have the experience. So are you always looking for, you know, the, the new hires coming in that are, you know, fresh out of school or a couple years, you know, into the profession, you know, being able to come in and enrich your, um, your studio with you know, more knowledge of the new softwares and where it can take your firm? Or are you like hire, you know, I need this, you know, I'm sending out a set the next week and I need you to jump in on toilet room plans. So um, in a resume, there's two things that will pop out to me first. It, they have to have some experience with Revit. If you have no experience with Revit, we don't even look at your resume. Or the only there's one thing that can override that is if you have construction experience. Because 
Yeah. We can teach you Revit pretty quick while you're right. doing construction work with us. But if you have neither, I can't. Yeah. I don't have the time to teach both. True. True. And yeah. it, for us, it's. I would say at the at the beginning when we were first looking to build the base, maybe like the first one or two employees. I need you to have both of those things. I need you to have Revit plus construction. And now that we have a base to rely on, and you know we're up to seven people, maybe our eighth hire would be just to fill a niche. And they they only have to have one or the other. Um, maybe not even construction experience, because mm-hmm. um, we can teach them Revit like a, like Nick right. said, RevitRockShit.com, piece of cake. So uh, I, I it, you know it always like one 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 gentleman that we hired. He had his own photography business, side business. He would do weddings, and now he does all of our architectural photography. That saves us a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and like when I post stuff on LinkedIn on this latest Eldorado Walls project, people are asking like, "Who did you hire to do that?" And I go, "Oh, just it's one of our employees." And they're like, "Well, he does a fantastic job." Um, so you know, there's stuff like that. Um, one of our other employees is really good at, at rendering. So he fills that he fills that right. niche hundred percent. Another guy is really good at he somehow he's just figured out structures, and like I trust him. Another guy it was somehow he, he worked for his dad first, and he showed us all these waterproofing details. I'm like, okay, you're the waterproofing guy, uh, <laughs> right, and then everybody right. else learns from from him. So it's kind of the way we practice at F9 is like I want just a diverse team, a diverse set of projects, a diverse streams of income, so that we're as strong as possible when the next. You know, when we are done with this crest in this uh, awesome economy out right now. Right. But, Lance, I think you're saying something really important, which is you're mentoring across your firm, right? So you're bringing that niche person in, and you're very quickly realizing that person's going to help every one of us get better. And I think that that is the key, I think, to growing any good firm is that mentoring that next generation. You've talked about hiring new people. You look for certain things, but you know they're going to bring a specialty, and then you need that to spread across the whole organization. Yeah, because no. we, we position ourselves when, with our hires um, as who, what can they bring to the table to make the firm as a whole, you know, more marketable. I mean, how can we be more competitive against, you know, larger firms that we're competing against and trying to, you know, land the same jobs that they are? You know? And so, you know, I mean, now I'm talking from a larger firm aspect than the smaller firms, but I was just curious if that... Now, there is the portfolio, too. How about you? Where are you at when looking at portfolios, Nick? Um, and how do you how do you judge it? Because there's two ways... We see two very, two different kinds of portfolios, basically, in, coming in from our firm. And it's literally because of the schools that teach in a certain way. One is, man, you are analog still. I can't believe you guys. just so many sketches, so many hand rendering, so many models. And then some people are just like from SciArc or something, they're just pure <laughs> digital. So do you have a preference for either one, or do you like mixed? So we don't like to see any words in the portfolio, because I'm not going to read. I don't really care too much about the description of the project. It's, you know, when you spend a half a page or a full page on the synopsis of, I don't care about that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not looking at, that's not what I'm looking at a portfolio for. I'm looking at your renderings and your hand drawings for design sensibility. Right. And then I like to see wall sections or t- some type of technical drawing to show that you've started to understand what those pretty pictures mean in the real world. Right. Uh, beyond that, it, that's all we're looking for. Yeah. But it is, n- it is awesome to see a mix of both computer and um, hand drawings in this set. Have, have any of you seen um, a lot of a lot of resumes we've been seeing lately are. They'll have like a little graph, and they'll say 
Revit, Photoshop, um, InDesign. They'll have all these lists of, of softwares. And then they'll rate themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. There's a little hmm. giggle. And sometimes they're sometimes they're real and sometimes they're not. I mean, it's sort of mm-hmm. like this weird, like you're rating yourself on the software. How do you even do that? I've seen um, that come on. And I, I don't care for it much. I just like, say you know Revit a little bit. <laughs> I could see, I could see say how that would a seven absolutely backfire on someone. Oh, especially yeah. Especially if you're, you know, you're looking to get somebody going, you know, boots on the ground, get moving. And, and they're like, well, you know, the software that you're going to ask me to do, I think I rate myself at a five. I'm like, well, I need a nine, dude. You know, <laughs> right. kind of thing. And so, you know, sometimes that might backfire. So anybody listening, maybe that's not something you want to include. I mean, what, how do you look at it, though? You know, I just dismiss it. Because it's it's such a subjective rating. I mean, how would you even, how would you even, without doing like a day test, like we talked about earlier, you right. know, same thing at NCARB. I, I don't know how you test people. You know, I don't know how you really believe that right. that's well, there. I appreciate that they. I would rather have a list, like Nick said. I think um, what it leads to is the question of why do you rate yourself a seven out of ten or a four out of five stars? Because right. that's what you really need to understand exactly. is. I, because I, I've seen this too, I appreciate the fact that they're trying to make it graphic and very quick and easy to read, but I think what we all know is it's about the conversation that happens. It's not, oh, you're, a, you're four stars. Four stars in my head probably means something very different than four stars in Nick's head. The, the resume is the only thing I read, but if it's over a page, I don't read it. It goes in the garbage. I don't. If you can't tell me in one page what you're about, I'm not interested. Yeah, we have we have another guest coming in. So I wanted to, I wanted uh, Jared to have one last opportunity before you go to talk a, a little bit about what NCARB is doing for small firms and how they could reach out and uh, gain some valuable information from what you're doing. Great, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, what I would say really is NCARB is really going to be focused this next year on supervision and mentorship. And like I said, really small firms are that front line because I started in small firms when I came out of school. I got a ton of great experience. That's really where I learned how to put a building together was in that small firm. But you go into a large firm and you get specialized, right? And you start doing one little thing. Small firms are, I firmly believe, a great place to do it. So look for resources from NCARB coming out in the next year on how to be a better supervisor, mentor, sort of that broad breadth of what it really means to be an architect. Um, other thing to watch for is we are doing a lot of work and researching the, where the current state of the profession is and where we're headed in the future. And small firms also are in a very pivotal place right now based on a lot of the research I've been doing about what's going to happen to that small firm in the next five to ten years. We're already seeing it. Trends are there. Small firms are getting bought up, right? The mid-sized firms actually getting bought up. Uh, so what's happening is firms are either becoming really big or staying very small, and we're going to have to see what that really does to the profession in the next, you know, ten to fifteen years. That's very interesting. So some of that that trend spotting is that available? That you know, architects can go to NCARB and find some of that information. We are we've, we're completing the research right now, and yep. we're going to start putting it out. So the, you're going to see more like infographics and things coming from that from NCARB. The other thing we're doing too, which I think hopefully will help frontline architects, uh, we've been doing more um, interaction with the International Code Council, trying to figure out better ways for architects and code officials to work together. I think we love code officials, and we sometimes <laughs> have some angst with code officials, right, Nick? At the same time, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say love is the right word. Okay, I'm trying I'm trying to be really Load positive. Love is the right word. Uh, right. So it, it may be a love-hate relationship, but let's move it to a uh, like-love relationship. So we are going to be doing that, too. And so watch. We just completed a great perception analysis between architects and code officials. Some interesting data is going to be coming out on that, too. Well, how, right. how can we how can 
how can we help support you? Yeah, besides, that was an excellent question. Perfect. Yeah, is you know because uh, I actually some people have asked the Entree Architect community about reciprocity and stuff. One thing I do like about NCARB is that the reciprocity process is very simple. When I order something to go to Idaho or where we're licensed or North Dakota, it, it's there and it, it is fast and it helps us get the work established up okay. there. Most important thing any small firm can do, and I expect every one of you to do this this year. NCARB is starting our next big analysis of the practice of architecture. So we need to hear from you. When we put out these questions and we're doing surveys, take the time to respond to them because we need to learn from you, the practicing architects. Like I said, I, I used to have a firm. I don't anymore. So, you know, I can do research, but I need to hear from you on the ground what's going on. When you inform us, that causes us to make changes. Cool. Yeah, excellent. Thank Reg, you very much. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming by. All right, that's it for part one of the AIA National Convention episode that we recorded, the ARCAST, the three podcasts together, ARCAspeak, Entree Architect, and Inside the Firm. I hope that you really enjoyed all those interviews. We had a lot of fun doing them. Uh, it was a kind of a round robin. Everybody was like jumping in, jumping out, and uh, a little chaotic behind the scenes, but I hope you really can't tell that right in the recording. Anyway, it was fun. So part two is coming out in our next episode, and I just wanted to mention some of the guests that we're going to have on that episode so that you can prepare yourself. We've got Bill Janet of RCAT. We've got Leah Bayer of EVS Studio, who won the Charette Venture Group uh, business plan competition. We have Earl Parson of Clever Moderns, Lucas Reams of Trimble Consulting, Demetrius Lynch of The Spaces Podcast and House of Lines. And there's a couple other things I want to mention real quick. I definitely want to remind you to check the show notes for all the links to all the people and the companies that we mentioned during the episode. There's a lot of great information in there, so definitely check out the show notes at arcaspeakpodcast.com. And uh, you can sign up to get those emailed to you on the right-hand side of the website as well. I know we haven't said that in quite a while on the, on the podcast but that is definitely there. And then two other things. Remember to check out the PSR1 competition, link in the show notes, and the USC BIMBOP 2019. That's probably the most time-sensitive thing that I'm mentioning. And again, the link to that is in the show notes. I would love to see you there. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'm actually going to be closing out that conference with a quick little presentation, so I would love to see you. And then there's two things that you could really do to help the ArcaSpeak podcast and the Entree Architect podcast and the Inside the Firm podcast. If you just take five seconds to rate us in Apple Podcasts, you can do it either through the iTunes interface or you can do it in the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, and then if you're using a podcast player like Overcast, go ahead and just give us a star. That really helps recommend our podcast to other people, and that would be awesome. Um, and then the second thing is just share our podcast with one of your friends. That would be awesome if you could do that and help spread the word that our podcasts are out there for people to listen to and enjoy and interact with us on a professional level or on a personal level. That would be really cool. So again, arcaspeakpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.